2: We are going back into the past with a freaking awesome rerun that'll take us all into the future. Hope you enjoy.
3: Yeah, you're, wait, wait, you're listening. <laughs> okay.
2: All right. Okay. All right. <clears throat> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Lab.
1: Radio Lab. from
3: WNYC.
1: See?
2: Rewind.
3: Hey, I'm Latif Nasser. I'm Lulu Miller.
2: This is Radio Lab, And today we're going to start... All right, here we go. ...with reporter Andrew Leland.
1: I'm just going to hold my mic like I'm doing a
3: karaoke. Where are you on on planet Earth? Where are you doing karaoke from? I'm in Long Beach, California.
4: All right, so now I'm just going to wander around talking to people, gathering, gathering it all.
1: At a place called the FBO, which is like a tiny private airport. Just one building sitting on a giant tarmac.
4: <laughs> and so I
1: walk into the building through these sliding glass doors, and it's this big, bright room with a fish tank in it and these fancy chairs, and it's full
4: Hi guys. Hi. of people. Hi, how are we? Good.
1: There is a film crew. How are you today? There's some family members. Hey, Anna, can I come in and, and lo- linger? Always linger. And the whole place is just sort of a buzz.
4: How's the team? How's the team feeling? We're good. Are we good? You. you seem good
1: because today is after months of preparation, flight day. It's this training flight for potential astronauts to experience near zero gravity. And so scattered about the room. I think you're, you're so your, your, your suit. Are these people wearing Yeah,
4: with the, the jumpsuit.
1: These jumpsuits, these flight suits. How are you feeling?
4: Good. Got your ticket? Got my boarding pass. Got pants. your flight suit, you're ready to rock. Yeah, I rock and roll.
1: Some of them look nervous. Some of them So
4: we're going to
2: are
1: at a little table as
2: the tradition before taking off for our flight. And
1: these people are the people who everybody's here to see. They're known as the ambassadors.
0: So you're one of the ambassadors.
1: Um I should say that I was also wearing a flight suit. No. I, that's
0: why I'm confused. Okay.
1: I'm not. I okay. am
0: But you press. could
1: be. I could be because technically I'm disabled.
4: Okay, take it away, Steve. I I am still arranging the deck. Don't worry, I'm not fixing it. And that's a Braille deck. We are really excited. This is the blind crew.
1: Because what this flight day is, is essentially an experiment.
4: We're going to head for the plane. Okay, let's do it.
1: This first step to see what would happen if disabled people were to go to space.
4: You ready to rock? Oh, you got it. Thanks, man. You think you're blind today? And
1: so these ambassadors...
4: Yeah, Dan, are we good? good.
1: Are all people with disabilities. (laughs) Yay! There are blind people. What the
0: hell are we doing? Oh, my God. Deaf people. <laughs> Let my first recorded words be.
4: What the hell are we doing? Oh, my God.
1: People who use wheelchairs, people who have prosthetics, who are here to be a part of this experiment.
4: go on now? Yeah. Uh, sure, that's good.
1: And I was there.
4: Making our way up the <laughs> switchback ramp here.
1: To simply report on it. <laughs> Basically, I was there to go on this flight. Good to go? As a journalist.
4: Oh, my goodness. That was amazing. But
1: it's, you know. There is. I'm coming at it from an of a an angle that I'm it's interested personally.
2: So Andrew is a writer that we've long admired here at the show, and it was a few months ago that he told us about this effort to get disabled people into space that was just in its kind of early experimental phase, and he really wanted to go. He really wanted to be a part of it and observe it because. What they were really up to seemed to be wrapped up in things he thinks about a lot.
1: Stuff I think about all the time, which is namely, what does disability mean and how does the world look at disability and how does that view need to change?
3: Well, outer space is not the obvious place I would go to for that to answer that question, uh, I think. I'm with you. Well, can, m- maybe... Um, Maybe just explain, like what, like, what were the steps that brought you to Long Beach to get on this flight thing you're on? Um, so I'm legally blind, and I'm getting blinder
1: at a very slow mm-hmm. rate. And mm-hmm. I've been writing and thinking about disability, and in particular, blindness, a lot more intensively in the last couple of years as I've kind of hit a new level of vision. And it's, it's put me in touch with the world of blindness and I've been hearing about...
0: One, two, three, here's the mic check. And if I get excited, I might talk like that.
1: A woman named Sherry Wells Jensen no, for a while. I won't
0: be doing much singing, I don't think. So that's <laughs>
1: And cool. it happened that Sherry is one of the key architects of this whole getting disabled people into space thing. This
0: could really change a lot of things. And so it's humbling and exciting and overwhelming to be part of
1: it. Well, so and also terrifying. Well, before we go deeper into all of that... There's a lot about you that I don't even know in terms of your background and and how you got to this point. So can we go back there first and then work our way back? Yeah, sure. So where are you from, Sherry?
0: I'm from Temperance, Michigan. And where is that? So if you hold your hand up like people do when they're from Michigan, um, Temperance is right down by your wrist on the thumb side.
1: It's a pretty small town, rural. And Sherry was born blind. But I was
0: a tree climbing, forest running child. I wanted to do everything.
1: But she said most of her childhood felt like people... Telling
0: me, slow down, be careful. Stay safely on the ground. Let me literally control where your hands go. And please go sit down and let me take care of you.
1: It was suffocating. It was a lot. But she said that she always had this place of refuge.
0: Outside, in the dark, at night.
1: In her backyard.
0: In the quiet, by myself. And I remember just having that sense of, wow no eyes are on me now. This is just me and the world. And I can move through it gracefully and quietly and intentionally. And I felt powerful and I felt sleek. And I felt um, like I had this, I had the night on my own terms. It was all mine.
1: And she said that even though she couldn't see the stars, she had that feeling
0: the world is so big and i am so small
1: that sense of awe that
0: sense of wonder
1: and she said it was in part those nights in her backyard that made her want to become an astronomer yes but um when she would say this to people they were like oh yeah yes
0: mhm i could read the room and i knew what was going to work and what was going to be a problem
1: so she graduates high school, goes to college,
0: discovered linguistics.
1: She became a linguist, and
0: then so there's only there's only one more sharp curve to go around to get where we are. Skip ahead about fourteen years, and I got a just an email out of nowhere that says, "We know we're doing a the SETI international SETI uh, the SETI Institute that's what they call themselves,
1: which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. People, we
0: know we're doing a seminar on cognition across the cosmos." Would you like to come out here?
1: And I'd gotten a hold of Sherry because she had developed a class in astrolinguistics, mm. which is basically the study of... What would
0: a truly alien language be like?
1: How you're going to communicate with aliens.
0: And after I picked myself up off the floor, I tried really hard to write a professional sounding, oh yes, I, would, I, I believe I can fit that into my uh, schedule and I'll be happy to attend... All the while, I was screaming my head off.
1: So she just starts reading anything she can find.
0: Everything I can get my hands on about extraterrestrial life and something keeps getting repeated. And the thing that keeps getting repeated is that any intelligent life capable of developing sufficient technology to build a radio telescope will have some analog of human visual perception. Hmm. And I kept reading that and I kept thinking, really? Are you really freaking trying to tell me that you could not have a civilization of blind people who could discover science and build a telescope? Is that really what you're saying? Because that is, if that is what you're saying, we are going to have words. <laughs> so I wrote um, this really cool paper about uh, how a blind race of aliens could go through all the steps of growing up and not being eaten by tigers and gathering food, and discovering science, and building a telescope. And so I presented this paper at a conference, and we had this lively debate about some of the details. And I thought, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm showing them, and they're getting it. And I could see how talking about blind aliens can make it better for blind people on Earth and making it better for all disabled people on Earth. And I was so happy. And then we get to the end of the paper, and I felt like they were with me, and they believed that I could build a telescope. And then I turned around. They were about two steps down off of the little stage I was on to get back to the seating area. And one of the people who had just agreed with me that blind aliens could smelt metal and build a telescope leaps up out of his seat, comes running forward and says to me, let me help you down those two steps.
1: Hmm.
0: And I felt like, oh, it's not going to be that easy.
1: I think that was a turning point for her, where she started to think, maybe theory isn't enough.
0: She did not believe I could get down those two
1: steps. And instead she needed to think about people, disabled people, blind people in space, and what a blind astronaut would look like, and how that would work. Because
0: you can't just do that without profoundly changing how disabled people are perceived on Earth.
1: And so in 2018, she sits down and writes this article for Scientific American called The Case for Disabled Astronauts. And the thing I like about it is it's not this sort of bid for inclusion.
0: It's not just about disabled people going off and being inspirational. It's not we're going to give candy canes to disabled kids on Christmas to make them feel better.
1: She's sort of making the case that, like, actually disabled people would make for better astronauts. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They should actually be given a slight preference when you're picking your next flight. Uh, Hmm.
3: Why? Why? Yeah, why?
1: Well, I mean, Sherry likes to say that space is trying to kill you at all times.
0: We're not evolved to go to space. Everything that we trust and depend on on Earth is just gone in space. It's just not there.
1: I mean, space is, is if you think about it, it's this weird disabling environment. Right. And so her point is that people with disabilities have already they're already kind of better prepared
0: because the built environment on earth is not built for you
1: it's built by and large for non-disabled people
0: so as you move about in your day you know you're going to have to work around things things are not going to be accessible to you something's going to go wrong you're going to have to figure it out um that skill set is essential for the unpredictable things that can happen to you in space you never know what the heck is going to happen, right?
3: Caution warning panels lit up like a Christmas tree. Fire warning lights, smoke warning lights, low voltage lights.
1: So one example is back in 1997 on the Mir space station.
3: There was a fire. Low torch-like intensity sparks flying off the end of it.
1: And even though it was a pretty small fire, smoke starts billowing.
3: Cabin's filling with it. You can't see the five fingers in front of your face, headed for a respirator. Fuzzy peripheral vision, needing oxygen.
1: Now... The Astronauts aboard did get the fire out. They did
0: a great job using the skill sets that they had.
1: But it did take them 14 minutes to extinguish the fire.
0: Wouldn't it be handy if you had one of your astronauts really good at moving around in the dark and uh, have a person who the dark doesn't bother?
1: Or another example, I don't think people realize that on a space station, it's extremely loud. So this is ambient sound of the International Space Station. Oh,
3: wow. It's quite loud. Yeah, that's pretty loud.
1: So there have even been reports of astronauts having hearing damage after spending a long time in space. But
0: if ASL is your first or one of your fluent languages...
1: Noise doesn't matter. You can still communicate. Or imagine...
3: The U-bag is tethered.
1: You're out on a spacewalk, and the radio just... Dies. Well, might not be a problem. If you could
0: sign... You know, and a lot of a lot of the time that the astronauts spend now with physical activity, you know you think about an astronaut's job as being very physical. a lot of the very physical activity is the two and a half hours a day they spend doing um training without constant load on your body,
3: your muscles will start dissolving your your bones will start getting reabsorbed back into your body,
0: doing physical workouts so they can retain the muscle tone and bone density that they came up with.
2: Luckily, we have the capability to run here on the space station, too.
1: So every day, they have to ride on stationary bicycles and strap into this special space treadmill.
0: Well, you don't have to run on the treadmill if your legs already aren't functioning.
1: That's time they could spend doing anything else, like research.
0: Mm. And um, so we are at the very beginning of space travel, of this whole enterprise of humans moving ourselves off the planet. But because we're at the very beginning of this and more and more companies and governments are gaining the possibility of putting people in orbit themselves, the question is, how are we going to do that? If we're really going to be a civilization that moves more and more people into space, which we could do, right? I don't see any reason we couldn't do that. Um, then we have a glorious opportunity right, this, right now, right now, because we're at the inflection point right now to decide What kind of people are going to be welcome there? And what kind of world are we going to build off planet? And so does that world include only the subset, the very small subset of human beings that happen to meet the present restrictions on physical ability to get into space? Or do we want to rethink that and open up the potential uh, recruits for our astronaut class?
1: There's like a common sense argument that I run up against, which is that, like, yes, like, obviously women are just as capable of being astronauts as men, because we know biologically, scientifically, in every way that women and men are equal in those ways. But then, like, when you try to say the same thing about disability, it's like, well, hang on a second. Like, disabled means not able, right? Like, literally the person can't do the same things, you know? So how do you, like, get past that seemingly, like, very common sense perspective? And that's
0: not an argument about space. That's an argument about employment. That's an argument about parenting. That's the argument that people have when they allow blind parents to have their children removed. Like, oh, you can't possibly parent, you're blind. You can't possibly parent this child, you're disabled. Um, And I'm just done tolerating that sort of stuff, right? Because that comes down to basic disrespect for other human beings and allowing your own fear and your own headspace to contaminate the way you treat other human beings.
1: But, but it's also an argument about space. I think when people like imagine what it takes to pilot a space shuttle, they're imagining all the same things that you need to parent a child or, you know, do all the things that you just listed. Yeah, I mean... And I guess like... Yeah.
0: I mean, I get it walking across campus. How do you know where you're going? What do you think you're doing here? Is there a special program for you? Can I help you get somewhere? Right? Hmm. Not hello, nice day, but all the other things, right? Hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so space, it might be a specially dramatic case, but it's the same case.
4: Hmm.
0: But the first step is not, hey, I know, let's send six disabled people to the International uh, Space Station. That's not the smart first move, right? The smart first move is to take a zero-G flight.
4: And then we're going to be on the
0: path toward something, toward making
2: big change.
4: What are we, what are we, what's going on in the plane right now?
2: When we come back, we're going to Long Beach, California.
4: But, but we just yeah, yeah.
2: Radio Lab will be back okay, so in a moment. lulu radio lab back with burgeoning space astronaut (laughs) reporter andrew leland so you okay but so how do we go from sherry like having this kind of amazing idea that seems born of her childhood and born of some real frustration and other things into this article great think piece loving it clicking To what the heck is happening up up down in in Long Beach.
1: Yeah. So Sherry put out that piece in the middle of 2018.
0: Was it minding my own business one about 10 months ago? I guess it is by now.
1: She gets a call from George T. Whitesides.
2: Dun, dun, dun. Who the heck is that?
1: He's the former chief of staff of NASA under Obama. And also on the line was Anna Volker.
0: The founder of Access a nonprofit organization dedicated to accessibility of the STEM fields to disabled adults and
1: children. They told Sherry, we read your article. We've also been thinking about this stuff for a long time.
0: And we're interested in staffing a parabolic flight full of disabled people of all sorts.
1: Do you want to be a part of it? Yes,
0: absolutely. Ah!
1: (laughs) So what happens then? How does it all come together?
0: What do you mean after the screaming?
1: (laughs) Why why are you screaming? Like, explain to me. It's just
0: that sense of somebody really believes, really believes, and is really gonna, is really committed to this thing.
1: So on October 14th, I went to Long Beach to see how this was all gonna play out. But also, I had a seat on the plane. Something about my body shape and it's the way this fits me—it feels
3: much more like
1: sanitation worker than astronaut to me. <laughs> so I get my flight suit on. I go gather with everybody.
3: Hello, welcome to Los Angeles slash Long Beach. <laughs>
1: After the welcome, I start meeting everybody. There are NASA people.
3: I'm a
4: planetary scientist.
1: Scientists. I meet George. Hey George, I'm Andrew Leland. T. Whitesides.
4: Does George
2: T. Whitesides have long, white sideburns?
1: No ma'am, he does not. How are you feeling this morning? I'm great. He's like, clean cut, Princeton guy. It's so exciting to have everybody together. And then I meet the crew.
4: Welcome.
1: The ambassadors.
4: Hey, are you Victoria? Hey. I wanted to introduce myself. I'm Andrew Leland. There were 12 total. Two of them were deaf. Tell me about what's going through your mind. Right now, I can just say I'm very excited.
1: Six have mobility disabilities, which means they use a wheelchair or a prosthetic. Hey, and four of them were blind.
4: Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Good. It's nice to meet you in person. I know, finally. One of
1: whom was, of hey, Sherry. course, hey, Sherry.
4: Sherry. are you, my friend? I'm good. Oh, sorry. I'm I just, just bumped into I'm you. I'm freaked out. I'm overwhelmed. Are you? I touched a thing that's going to space.
1: And so the plan for today is that all of us are going to get on this plane and do what's called a parabolic flight.
3: Right. And can you just can you just explain what that is, actually?
1: So really simply, you're on a plane, the plane starts to ascend, and it's somewhat violently up. Like, the nose is pointing 45 degrees into the sky. And then at, like, 32,000 feet... The pilot cuts the thrust of the engines and starts to level the plane back out. And it's in that moment, because of physics, gravity starts to get canceled out. And what you get is this little window of like 20 to 30 seconds where you feel weightless, where you feel like you're just floating in space. Hello. Incredible, really. Well, I'm I'm wondering what like what exactly is the question you all are trying to answer with this flight? The
0: question, I think the question is what is 0G like for disabled people and what do we need to do to make it accessible? What problems are we going to find? So we're we're sort of out there looking for problems.
4: So if you guys want to pick your sounds, then I can program them.
0: So for blind people floating in zero gravity, do we in fact need some kind of device that will help you always know where the nominal floor is?
1: Because on these flights, the most important thing is, Can you float up and then find your way back down to where you started from without hurting anybody? So before the flight, the blind crew was testing out these different ringtones that might help them orient themselves. Because Sherry's like, we don't know what happens when you're blind in zero G.
0: Do you just panic and roll into a little ball and cry?
1: Like there's all these things they don't know.
0: How much of an inconvenience are legs that you can't control in zero gravity? How do
1: you alert a deaf person that they need to get back to their seat?
0: You can't stomp on the floor and use the vibrations to help get attention. So what's, what's ideal? Is it like a light? A little stock ticker thing.
1: In some ways, the fundamental question is just, what happens to you when you're disabled?
0: In zero gravity. I mean, we, we don't know that until we do the investigation.
1: And so... Look at that plane. Sunday morning, 10.30 a.m., we all board this plane.
4: Hey. Oh. oh, sorry.
1: It's a normal plane, except once you get inside... It's like you've entered a tube of toothpaste or something. Why is that? Well, in the main cabin, there's no seats. And it's just lined with these, like, bright white gym mats. But in the back, there are a few rows of seats. And so I went uh, and sat down there with everybody.
4: Well, this feels like a commercial airliner, right?
0: I strap myself in so I don't run for it. I know. We got middle (laughs) seats.
1: And apparently there's an area in the very far back of the plane called the Pain Cave... Where, yep. if you start to feel real bad, you can go there. Feel bad, like. Well, the plane is known as the Vomit Comet. Oh, right, because of the, duh. But anyway.
0: Dear past self, what the fuck were you thinking?
1: Doors close, and pretty quick. At
4: this time your seat back. The plane is moving.
1: You take off. Here we go. And we fly out over the Pacific Ocean north of San Francisco.
4: Yeah, all right. Just, I'm just chilling.
1: And they start bringing people out into the well, main the group is going, huh? area with the padding.
4: Have a great time all right, here we go. Oh, two minutes.
1: Everybody kind of okay. takes their positions. So you said
4: they did
0: install them? Say again? Okay, you said they did install them? They did. They did. I'm positive.
1: The Blind crews I'm positive. checking on their sound system. I see one guy lying on a mat who uses a wheelchair. He's got a strap around his legs. With
3: the hope being that it is tight enough to keep my legs spreading apart and doing a split.
1: Everybody's getting ready. And then... Now
3: we're heading up, up the hill.
1: The plane starts climbing.
4: I can feel it. Oh, my goodness. lay down. Time to lay down. We
1: get up to 20,000 feet. 25,000,
4: 30,000,
1: and then at 32,000 feet we enter zero gravity. And suddenly people are just floating everywhere, bouncing off the walls. And there are just all these bodies moving around in space. Oh my God. And it's pretty chaotic and disorienting. But it's like you get a peek into this other world, and then it's like... Oh and in like 20 seconds, gravity's back.
4: It's extremely disorienting. I forgot which way the floor was, but I found it. If I was totally blind, I'm trying to imagine how I would be doing this.
1: So the plan is we're going to do 15 parabolas. And as we keep going, I'm trying to get around and talk to people and observe things. And I'm in a snow globe that a toddler is shaking every minute.
4: I don't think a single person is doing an experiment on this plane. Just the, just the getting through each problem an experiment.
1: And then I find out later that the blind crew, the sound devices that they brought, aren't working because it's too loud on the plane for them to hear. And every time I feel like I'm trying to get a handle on something, somebody starts yelling, Feet
4: down!
1: Feet down! Feet down! But eventually, I do make my way up to the blind group.
4: Yep. How you doing? And they're like... Dude, it's amazing!
1: This is incredible.
4: Sherry, how are you? Awesome. Everything's going good? Awesome. So good. And do you have trouble, like, bumping into anybody or, like, finding the floor or anything? No. Oh, shit, I think we're... Is it starting again? I'm going to lie down. Oh.
1: And as we all float up again... I start to realize that people are figuring it out. Like they're all doing the thing. They're floating up off the floor and safely floating back down. And it's happening over and over again.
4: Eric is doing like breakdancing disco moves. Monica is doing some oh, lie back down, lie back down.
1: And while we were up there, we also did these parabolas that simulated to the moon! gravity on the moon. And gravity on Mars.
4: Like Mars, oh yeah. Mars is good. Woo! Mars is good.
1: And at a certain point,
4: having kind of an emotional reaction to that,
1: I just felt overwhelmed. No one's in the pain cave. No one's getting sick. Like they're able to do this.
4: Here comes another one. Bonus <laughs> <laughs> seems extremely happy. And Sherry looks honestly like a Buddha. Oh, there's little bottles of water. There's water floating all through the cabin and little beautiful orbs. My legs are reaching the ceiling. I see Cece. Her mouth is open wide. And we're coming down. Yes, level. We're done. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Long Beach for the local time
1: is 259. So, we make it back down to Earth. We deplane. We have some snacks. There's lots of hugs. And that, that's pretty much it.
2: So, okay, they land and, like, scientifically... What did the flight show us? Like what did it prove?
1: They found that between 70 and 90 percent of the times that an ambassador left their yoga mat or their station, uh, they were able to
3: return to it. Huh. And that's like how what was that how does that check against their expectations or I think they were very happy with that.
2: And was there was there was it truly just like can disabled people hack it in a space flight? Well, but or was there was anyone looking specifically at could they make better astronauts than non-disabled people
1: I, honestly I don't think that they were testing against non-disabled astronauts on this flight mm-hmm. I mean it was it was a really tiny mission compared to being an actual space you know like to being an astronaut but I will say that when I was on the plane I, I did feel like there were some moments when that huge distance between what it takes to be an astronaut, to go on a mission to Mars, and what was happening on this plane, that huge distance felt like it started to collapse a little bit. Hmm. Like, there was one moment with Mary Cooper, who's a Stanford undergrad who has a prosthetic leg. Um, One of her goals was to, like, remove her prosthetic leg and reattach it in microgravity, You know, and so she did that test, which is fine. But then she also, like, took it off, held it in her hand, and spun it. Huh. So that it was, like, spinning on its axis and kind of rotating, you know, doing this very graceful microgravity balletic turn in space. And as her leg was just floating there between us, I just looked at her, and I was like... You are totally an astronaut right now.
0: We can we can do this. Disabled people can be astronauts. I, it's clear to me.
1: Sherry Wells Jensen again.
0: And so I felt powerful and confident and joyful. But we didn't flick a switch and change the world. I can tell that by the next two times I went through airports, right? You know what I mean by my airport situation, right?
1: Yeah. Wait, what's the airport situation? So, after the flight, Sherry left Long Beach and flew up to Berkeley to visit some friends. And as she was getting off the plane and like walking up the jetway, these guys came up behind her and started directing her.
0: Like three guys behind me in the jetway going a little bit left, a little bit right. That's like they were trying to, they had, I should have turned around and said, if y'all want a remote control car, go buy one because <laughs> I would just like to walk down the freaking jetway in peace. Could you stop? Yeah. Could you stop?
1: Could you please just, Jesus, could you please stop? Stop, stop, stop. Um, She's thinking, like, I just did this thing that, you know, is this brand new, never been done before historical thing, and these guys still can't conceive of me as being able to, like, walk in a hamster tube. And
0: so in some ways, what we've done is widen the gap between what's possible and what's expected,
4: Wait,
1: you widened it or you narrowed it?
0: I think we widened it because we pushed what's possible out of step. Like we went on this parabolic flight and it was like, oh, look at that. These disabled people can do that. But the the expectations didn't change. Hmm. Right? That gap between what I understand we can do and how we are still treated and what the expectations on Earth still are is a horrible, yawning gap. And it's bigger than I thought it was because the positive end has been moved up, right? So I know that I can f- be an astronaut. And yet when I walk through an airport, people treat me like a drunken golden retriever.
1: It, it reminds me of the way you described microgravity, where like you you push against the wall and... You sort of go flying in the other direction. Mm. It's, it's almost like this project in some ways, like you gave this wall a big shove and instead of the wall moving, like you kind of went tumbling
0: <laughs> I think that's, I think that makes really good sense it was it, it was emotionally quite distressing, quite disorienting to me to to return after this amazing flight and to realize the world remains unchanged
1: and I have to say I, I had my own sort of complicated upside-down experience of of watching these possibilities get pushed out further.
4: I am floating up from the ground.
1: Like, around the end of the first set of parabolas, there was this moment where Eric and Sawyer, who were in the mobility group, sort of floated into standing positions.
4: All right, so apparently... In lunar gravity, I can stand, so that's cool. And I
1: started crying.
4: i having kind of an emotional reaction to that.
1: And I really didn't want to be crying.
4: I can't imagine doing this with people who can walk.
1: And I felt really bad that I was crying. And Why would you feel bad about that? It seemed to come out of the sense of liberation that, like, you know, the wheelchair user, wheelchair, like, that, that like, their disability had been erased and that's a thing to celebrate. Because that goes against everything that I'm trying to understand and, and sort of frame, situate myself in, towards, right? Like, I feel like as I become more blind, it's, it's really complicated for me because like what I'm going through right now is a loss and I'm experiencing it as a loss. Like it's a literal loss, but there's all this emotional loss connected to it too. But at the same time, like I am recognizing elements of blindness that are interesting And, like, it's tricky. Like, part of me wants to, like, go with the Sherry route of being like, and maybe even it's making me better, you know, and I'm not there yet. But at the very least, I don't want to see disability as a negative trait that should be erased. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you in terms of the flight. So after Sherry told me about her complicated reaction to the flight. I started crying. I told her about mine. And then afterwards... I was sort of ashamed, like, why was I crying? And was I like, you know, do you think that that my reaction was problematic in that no. way? No,
0: no, 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 that's different. Those people were genuinely feeling joy. Hmm. They weren't being manipulated. They didn't walk away feeling like shit and you were happy. Hmm. They were genuinely joyful about a new experience with their own bodies, which belonged to them. And... I try to be super fair about this. I think if there were a 0g parabola and I went through it and I could see for a minute, if I could see light and color like I did when I was a tiny tiny child, I would have been I would have been somewhere else. I would have been elated. I would have been joyful. That's a new that experience um, is not a bad experience. I think that the harm comes when we use that joyful experience as a weapon against your ordinary experience.
1: What do you mean? What does that mean?
0: It means that that would not make my life as a blind human being less valuable, or it wouldn't mean that I was now going to struggle all my life to return to the zero-G state so I could see again. Like, I don't want to use that experience of being different as explosives against my ordinary experience, which is not seeing. It's, a, it's a, It would be such a relief to have that experience without having to have people feel sorry for you later that it went away.
1: Let, let me ask you one more question about you, though, about this gap that you've talked about. If the flight is actually making the gap bigger, then why are you planning future flights?
0: Oh, it doesn't, because the gap has always been there, right? It's not like I discovered it. Right, it just, I just had a, I just had a particularly vicious um, uh, experience of the gap, and that doesn't mean, I mean, I mean, because these flights make it better, right? In the end, these flights are going to make it better. I'm not a patient person, but I'm willing to take the long view when I have to. Um, that we are making things better by doing, by doing the work of gathering the data that we need, that will eventually make things more accessible that will eventually change lives, that will eventually destroy the gap.
2: Reporter Andrew Leland. Andrew just came out with a new book. It is called The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. And in a lot of ways, it's really similar to this episode. In it, he goes on all these different adventures with other folks who are blind, artists, sculptors, activists, engineers, kayakers, philosophers, um, all while his sight is fading more and more. It is beautiful. It's vulnerable. It's masterful. Um... And I highly recommend you check it out.
3: This episode was reported by Andrew Leland and produced by Maria Paz Gutierrez, Matt Kilty, and Pat Walters. Jeremy Bloom contributed music and sound design. Production sound recording by Dan McCoy. Thank you to so many people. Here we go. All the Mission Astro Access ambassadors, including and especially Sherry Wells Jensen, Dana Bowles, Apurva Varia, Eric Ingram, Mary Cooper. Mona Minkara, Sina Burham, Zubian Wuta, Sisi Mazik, Victoria Modesta, Eric Shear, and Sawyer Rosenstein. Plus, additional thanks to George Whitesides, Anna Volker, Ann Capusta, Jamie Molaro, J.D. Polk, Katie Coleman, Shannon Finnegan, Sharon Von C., April Jackson, Ebony Gaitan, and Annie Diekman.
2: I'm Lulu Miller.
3: I'm Latif Nasser composed of the wrong stuff uh this is radiolab thank you for listening
0: radio lab was created by jad abamrod and is edited by soren wheeler lulu miller and latif Nasser are our co-hosts dylan keith is our director of sound design our staff includes simon adler jeremy bloom Beckup Ressler, Rachel Cusick, Aketi Foster Keys, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindunyana Sambandang, Matt Kielty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sara Kari, Anna Rascuet-Paz, Sarah Sandback, Arian Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Sachi Kitajima Moki. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Natalie Middleton. Hi, I'm Luis Vera, and I'm calling from Mexico City. Leadership support for Radiolab science programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Science Sandbox, the Simons Foundation Initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radiolab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. I'm David Remnick, and each week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from The New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to The New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.